Hi, dear listener. Welcome to the Young Change Makers podcast, an initiative from Global Change Makers. Your co-hosts Sophie, George, and William are very happy to have you join us today. Over this first season, we'll show you the incredible impact of youth and hopefully inspire you to take action too. Don't forget to subscribe, and if you're ready, let's go. Okay, welcome everybody to the first interview I'm doing for the Global Youth Changemakers podcast series. I'm very excited to be here today sitting with Daniel Macmillan Voskrobodrinik. So Daniel, I'm just going to introduce yourself and then um, we'll continue to open up the conversation around, um, well, I guess a lot to do with climate activism and how ways individuals can get a bit more involved um, on a personal front as well as through our organisations. Daniel, you're a um, journal, journalist and activist and you've co-founded The World at One Degrees, which is a communication initiative designed to humanise the ecological crisis as well as clarify its causes. Um, Daniel has also written a book, The Memory That We Could Be, and this, this book, I've actually started reading it um, last week. So far, I'm really enjoying it. Um, for those of you who want to get more of a, like, a less technical sort of approach to climate change, yes, I'm enjoying that so far. Um, so, yeah, welcome, Daniel. And I'm very excited to have you as one of my first interviews for the, for the podcast series. Thanks so much. It's great to be with you, George. So first of all, I'm going to ask you, why and how did you become involved in the fight against climate change? That's a pretty general but broad question. But can you just elaborate to our listeners a bit more about your personal journey and um, your own circumstances and how you ended up in climate activism? Yeah, um, that's a great question. Uh, so I think, I mean, I... Um, I, I grew up in, in Russia in the UK and then, I, and then in Argentina was, was where I spent most of my childhood. And, and I, from a very young age, I think just from my family circumstances, from the lessons that my grandparents imparted in me, I was just very interested in social activism and, and, and working against injustice uh, mm-hmm. in all its forms. But I think, I mean, I'm part of a generation where, where the climate crisis and, and the prospect of kind of environmental catastrophe began to be mainstream, mainstream from an early age. And it was kind of always the background as I was studying at school, it was kind of... Um, I was working on different projects in school, fundraising in particular for, for a project supporting indigenous youth in the north of Argentina when I was a kid. That was something I was really passionate about. Um, but I was also very passionate at just about trying to understand the world from a very early age. And from everything I was reading, it was kind of in the back behind the scenes, kind of the, the elephant in the room was this ecological crisis. We have all these inequalities, all these injustices, yet at the same time, kind of the background injustice seems to be that um, as a society where collapsing the, the biological pillars necessary to, to, to ensure the decent survival of, of, um, of human societies. So that was kind of always behind the scenes from a very early age, I remember that. And I think it was more when I was about 15, 16, 17, that I began to say, well, look, unless you start taking this a bit seriously, unless you start thinking about it and reading about it and starting to work about it, then um, I don't know what it means to work on the other smaller stuff. And so yeah. and that's when I made the concerted decision to kind of when I was about 16, 17, and then from then on, I've been more involved in the so-called climate movement and working on climate issues, if that makes sense. Definitely. So you've, from your perspective, it's more been an um, individual sort of personal approach, like you didn't have any 
sort of mentor or it wasn't through your education that triggered a, a response from yourself to want to get involved in activism? It's been more just from your, your journey personally. Yeah, I mean, there have, be, there have been, it's obviously every journey is individual, but there have been a lot of mentors along the way. Um, there's been personal mentors. My grandparents have been huge influences. Without speaking in the language of climate change or climate activism, they have a very deep connection to the land that they're from, to the land that they've grown up around and worked. Um, they, they, they have a huge passion for, for agriculture as well. Mm. And they imparted huge ecological, ecological lessons in me from a young age, even though I didn't know it at the time. And then reading reading many, many different authors and activists when I was about 15, 16, people like Andrew Shiva, um, people like Eduardo Galeano, um, great ecological thinkers who, who they helped weave together a story that was incredibly inspiring. And so I, I, yeah. I count on them as some of my mentors from a young age, for sure. We talk about climate change from like, a lot of us are inherently connected to nature. And I think it's important to recognize how we've lost the connection to, to nature and our surroundings. Um, what do you suggest improve this disconnect between people, like urbanization is obviously increasing at a rapid rate. How can we ultimately become more connected with, with nature and uh, learn to appreciate and also recognize the, the damage that we're causing around in our own backyards? Absolutely. That's a, that's a very, very good question. I think um, an important place to start, I think, is from a recognition that that, that disconnection is not universal, even mm. though there is a very dominant model which encourages that disconnection. And certainly in most urban contexts, people feel that. There's so much to learn from indigenous, rural, peasant communities that haven't lost that connection, that are emblems and examples of what it means to have a connection with the land. So I think it's super important to qualify that we in terms of who's disconnected from nature. Uh, it's, it's many, many communities, I think, are examples of what, what, what it means to recover that connection. So I think one place to start is by learning from those communities. Yeah. And then the other, the other places based on that learning is I think that we have to have a major transformation in, in our educational system, particularly in urban settings. Mm. It can't be that we spend um, pretty much all our, you know, I, I spent, for example, I, I grew up in an urban context. I did not learn about agriculture, what it meant to grow food, what it meant um, to, to, to sustain life at any point throughout my educational curriculum. It was just absent. It was, it was something that was relegated to other people. And I think the one important way to, to heal that connection with nature is to make sure that nature-based education, to make sure that agriculture-based education are priorities within the curriculum. They're, they're not kind of some, some, some things that we can just leave to communities that are going to feed us as urban elites. But this should be a huge part of the curriculum. Um, yeah. I don't know, what, what, what do you think from your own experience? I mean, own... I just had a few thoughts there. Like my experience, I mean, I went into, I grew up on a farm and loved running around on the farm at a young age, barefoot, was always involved in nature. But then I went through to high school and I wanted to study agriculture. But at the school I was at at the time, they didn't even have agriculture as a curriculum. And we're in a, this is a regional town in Australia. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, I was lucky enough to eventually, I went to a boarding school and agriculture was there, um, offered there. And we went out to do farm visits and work with cattle and a bit more practical in that sense. But yeah, I think if we compare like people who are growing up in an urban context it's 
it's very different to myself who have been very lucky to have grown up regionally or on a property. And even people in um, developing countries are a lot more connected to, to life on the land. I mean, in, in Kenya, where I've also spent a lot of time, children are out with, you know, hoes in the field at the age of three. They're, they're, they're surrounded by the livestock in their villages. Um, that's something us in the West are kind of um, losing a bit of that connection. Um, and I think it's going back to the educational system. I think, yeah, we need to really um, encourage youth to to see a, a future and, a, and, a, and a, play a vital role in, in agriculture. I mean, my journey on making agriculture more sustainable and the idea of regenerative food systems is, is paramount to how we're going to move forward. Um, after reading in your book, you discussed the importance of recognising sort of more traditional food production methods and um, cultures. How would you suggest that us moving forward in an industrial sort of agriculture model can take lessons back from sort of our ancestors and adopt more, I mean, simplistic but effective agriculture methods? If you want to talk a bit more about that, because that's super interesting for me. <laughs> yeah, um, absolutely. I think I think um, a big part of the desire to write the book as well was to show, to really, really fight back against, I think, one of the most um, uh, difficult legacies and arguments we grapple with is that, you know, humans, all humans have destroyed the earth. We have all done this. And... Um, the model that we have put that we have introduced this industrial agriculture mm -hmm. model is the only one we have and it's just a matter of course correction and that's not the fact at all um it's only a small portion of humanity has been responsible for putting down this model with such destructive implications but we have such a rich human memory that we can draw on of ancient traditions um now it's it's very difficult to universalize there are thousands and, and, and tens of thousands of different traditions that are all rooted in their own context um the, the, there's two incredible, one, wonderful um, uh, ethnographers and, and um, agronomists called Victor Toledo and Narciso Arreabasos from Mexico, and mm. they call it biocultural memory. We have a rich biocultural memory across the world of people knowing how to relate to the land, how to nourish the land, how to work in collaboration with the land and with the other beings of those ecosystems. And what they've done first is just a work of documentation um, and a work of highlighting that. Um, so in every context is different. What, what that means in, um, in Australia, what that means uh, in Latin America, what that means in, in mm. like Russia is very, very different. So there's not a universal answer. The first place to look is from the communities that have had that healthy relationship to the land. It's, 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 it's a relationship and it's a set of solutions that have been developed over millennia um, through testing, through constant curation. So that's uh, one way to start, is learning first and is fighting back against um, the, the dominance of the, the, there is no alternative position, there is no alternative to industrial agriculture, we have no other way of doing things. Mm. Um, absolutely, that's not the case. Um, there are so many ways of doing it and the first thing is just to listen a bit um, to communities and to, and to take, you have the humility of learning um, and, and accepting that there are many, many people in many communities that have not taken up the model of destruction and plunder, but have Definitely. maintained carefully, carefully for many, many centuries, um, a model of care and, and um, reciprocity. Yeah, I think from my own perspective, um, growing up in Australia is such an interesting um, example of, you know, the white man, the first Europeans 
Um, the English arrived in Australia in 1788 and brought with them farming methods are so um, suitable to, to the UK in wet weather conditions. And then they come out to such an arid landscape, desert country. And they, it just didn't work. Um, and there's been a terrific book written by um, Bruce Pascoe, who's an Indigenous uh, man in Australia, and it's called Dark Emu. If people want to know a bit more about the, the um, Indigenous sort of story in Australia, of the Aborigines, and yeah, they brought they had such terrific um, farming methods, but the whole story around Aboriginals were always hunters and gatherers, and they never knew how to farm and cultivate. But that's actually been quite false. They've um, they invented amazing turkey nest dams and yeah created great ant varieties like the wheat crop and propagated those seeds and made it more climate resilient so a lot of that sort of traditional knowledge has been lost I think and if we can bring that back into conversation and even into education I think yeah there's definitely a lot to be learnt. Huge. I, thanks so much for the recommendation. I don't know Bruce Pascoe's work. Is that right? Bruce Pascoe is the name Bruce of the Bruce Pascoe. Um, Bruce Pascoe. Maybe we can put it in the show notes. Um, mm. And his book's called Dark Emu. It's really, really okay. good read, actually. It's, it's become well um, recognised in Australia at the moment. So that's, that's, that's super, super. Well, thanks so much for that recommendation. And I think that that um, recognition of, mm. of going into the history and looking at and acknowledging the ingenuity and innovation and, and, uh, and contributions made by Aboriginal Indigenous, um, mm -hmm. Afro-descendant and, and uh, agrarian peoples around the world is also, it, it has much more implications than just beyond um, us giving us solutions for the crisis that we're facing now. When we start accepting that, that actually there are alternatives to, to, to the dominant, um, agricultural model and that these solutions come from communities that have been for many many centuries stigmatized marginalized and through a process of racism rendered inferior and unworthy of containing knowledge actually the implications of accepting that the solutions to crisis we face now come from these very communities means reversal a whole even way of thinking Definitely. it means challenging hierarchies of knowledge and maybe the idea that that all um all knowledge has to come from incredibly prestigious um, European American universities and, and white academics with fancy titles. It's recognizing actually that this has much deeper implications than just simply simply saying that there's agrarian solutions in these communities. I think. Yeah, it definitely. Um, we've been discussing this a lot. Um, as I've mentioned earlier to you, Daniel, studying a master's in sustainable agriculture at the moment in the UK, and I'm very fortunate that in our class and in our discussions we have students from Nigeria, South America, um, India. So these discussions have been super interesting around, um, yeah, Western point of view, but also how they're my classmates' um, personal stories and they, some of them grew up in sort of rural, remote communities and how agriculture is a traditional um, approach to food production is quite undervalued. And although we need to bring in new models from the West and these new technologies that I think needs to be a um, considerate point where we merge both to, you know, take both into account. Yeah, so we can move on a bit from agriculture because I could talk about it 
all day, I think. <laughs> but I'm going to, so what, Daniel, what, what was your motivation for writing your book? Um, and what is the ultimate message you're hoping that people will take out of the book? Um, if you can summarize that. Yeah, um, the motivation uh, came from a project I was working on with a friend called The World at One Degree. Mm. Um, and it was, uh, we were frustrated by, particularly in the North, particularly in parts of Western Europe and the US, the, the way that the climate conversation was developing. It was a conversation which I think uh, very much dehumanized the climate crisis, which made it into a technical issue. And it oversimplified the climate crisis. It said that, you know, this is simply a case of, you know, rising emissions, we just have to, you know, um, reduce emissions a little bit and we've got time, it's gonna be okay. Um, and this story, which is evacuated of urgency, evacuated of complexity, I thought ended up with encouraging people to take very, very um, small actions that are, uh, you know, um, inadequate with the scale of the climate crisis. Mm -hmm. So the, 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 the goal of the book is to try and encourage people to, a, take the time to think through the climate crisis and understand its, it, and its magnitude and its complexity and its range and, 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 and its width. Um, and the other one is to encourage people to have hope. And I think that the major issue with the climate crisis is this issue of it being seen as a tiny single technical issue. When in fact, um, when we think about ecology, for example, ecology is the study of the connections that sustain lives. And when we put on an ecological, um, like ecological glasses, if you like, it means we have to see the climate crisis as a, as a crisis that is full of many, many connections and is connected to many, many things. It's a racism crisis. It's an injustice crisis. Yeah. Um, it's a crisis of borders. It's an economic crisis. It's a crisis in the way we think about economics and agriculture and land development. Um, if you want to approach the climate crisis, you first have to acknowledge that magnitude and all the connections. And so I hope the book's not an answer to anything. If anything, it's an invitation to humility. Mm. Um, hopefully that, that's something that's come through. And it's a hope that people can start to approach the climate crisis with a refreshed angle. Um, one that, that is open to that scope and one that um, allows people to also um, uh, see themselves as, as part of that broader picture, if that makes sense. Definitely. Given that this podcast... Um, I mean, it's focused around hoping to motivate and um, sort of open up ideas for youth to get involved in, whether that be social or, in this case, environmental activism. What would you propose are the key um, sort of or the first steps that someone can do to, um, to first of all, make a difference in their personal lives, um, but also get more involved at a, at a larger level in climate activism? Mm. That's a really, really good question that like demands, and that, that has many, many possible answers to. I think the um, kind of two best bits of advice that I've been given is A, to always try and reframe the question about I as a question with we. I wish the, the climate crisis could be solved through an accumulation of individual choices, but it's a problem of such magnitude that only collective action is going to solve it. So. Um, the most powerful things that people can do, um, I mean, there are things that people can do to, in their own personal lives around reducing their own footprint. There's lots of work already done on that. I, don't, I think people, people know where to find that information. But um, yeah, yeah. the most important question is to reframe it, be like, what can I do with other people that is powerful and that can inspire other people? And what I'd encourage people to do is understand that if the climate crisis is not a crisis in, in, in isolation, I think the most important impact people can have is by joining the dots, by starting to think, look, what are the main issues that, are, that, that, that affect my community? Is it poverty? Is it youth unemployment? Mm. Is it the isolation of our elderly? 
Um, and how is it that we can try and solve these problems in conjunction? Can we propose bold solutions that both reduce emissions, that both nourish the land and regenerate the land um, and absorb emissions, for example, if we're thinking about it from a climate perspective? But is there any way that those things as well can also advance the other things that are important, that can advance, advance gender justice and advance um, racial justice to heal racial inequalities, um, that advance health, that advance support for our elderly and, and for our young people. And there's many, many people working on systemic solutions. So I think the, the most important skills, especially for this 21st century, where we're facing such an enormous amount of challenges that are all combined and, and, and affect each other, is to start being um, an ecological thinker, to think mm -hmm. about things in a connected way, and to start thinking through solutions um, that are combined. And that might, might feel like unsatisfactory advice. People often want the simplicity of saying, there's, do X, Y, and Z, and we're going to solve things. But I think that's, that's a dishonest answer. The honest answer is that in every context, there are different solutions that are appropriate. Um, the best people to understand what to do are people in those territories who talk with each other. So my biggest invitation is um, invite yourself to that incredible dance with the system. Um, work with others, learn from others, and be imaginative and creative. We need bold solutions. We have to be in the business of boldness. And boldness comes through connection. So yeah, meet up with other people, learn from other people, and start thinking through things um, in a way that's more connected. Is my main. Definitely. Advice. Now I think we're feeling a surge from, I mean, us millennials are old to um, tackle issues front on these days. I mean, yeah, we need to change the way we um, talk about it, how we get involved in our communities, as you mentioned. Um, so I've um, seen. Paul Hawkins' book, Drawdown, um, and there's a lot of talk around, is it the top 100 solutions he's listed um, to mitigate climate change? That's, quite, that's um, quite a fascinating list, and they've suggested that's the most comprehensive plan to date um, that's been set up to reduce um, emissions and mitigate climate change. What's your take on... Um, let's say the top 10 solutions. Can you take us a bit, a bit of a walk through some of those solutions and um, what you feel are the most um, promising? Yeah, that's a very good question. And I encourage everyone also to look into the work of Paul Hawken and the, the Drawdown Project. They've um, come up with, I think, a very exhaustive and, and amazing list of 100 um, solutions. And there's everything there from agroforestry to silviculture to... Um, to new types of agriculture, to reducing emissions, to solar energy. Um, mm. I think it's a very, very encouraging project, but it's limited in one important sense. Um, when we talk about, the, if we're concerned about the climate crisis, um, we have to first of all understand what the climate crisis means. The climate crisis is not, is not something that we just have to tackle through reducing emissions. When the, the climate crisis magnitude comes from the fact that it inflames and exacerbates all the social injustices and deprivations we're seeing around the world. If we care about the climate crisis, we care about the poverty that it worsens, we care about the injustice and the exclusions that it deepens. So while Paul Hawkins' um, work and the work of the Jordan Project is very, very important in terms of reducing emissions, um, I think it's important to think about climate justice action, which means reducing emissions while simultaneously reducing the injustices that those emissions worsen. Simultaneously, okay. a lot of the work of the Drawdown Project doesn't talk about adaptation or talk about the impacts of climate change. We have to be working to reduce the problem in as much as we're also helping people deal with the inevitable impacts that are baked in already. So sort so, of, yeah, it needs to be more of a holistic sort of interconnected approach. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 
and we should encourage people to look into drawdown. But um, um, we can't also we can't also simply just focus on mitigation. Mitigation has to be accompanied by adaptation work, by justice work to support what, what people um, uh, call loss and damage, which is countries and, and communities which are going to be impacted by climate change in a way that's irredeemable that have to be supported. Mm. Um, and also understand that we need to have the dimension of poverty um, alleviation of justice um, that, that that is absent often in, in, in the work of drawdown. Definitely, one of them the. the um... The solutions I'm quite excited about and starting to do a bit of reading on is seaweed. Um, some people might sort of raise their eyebrows at seaweed and what's that going to do? But, I mean, it's been noted as having a huge carbon sequestration potential and growing seaweed doesn't use land. So it's out and can be grown in, on water, you know, a significant benefit. Um, there's a um, scientist in Australia, Tim Flannery, um, is really suggesting that seaweed is one of the best solutions in carbon's drawdown potential and he's calling seaweed his best friend. So that's prompted me to um, get into a bit more research around that and I might be investigating this for my master's thesis. What's your take on, on seaweed? Have you investigated that at all? Uh... No, not in depth, really. I've heard about the. I've heard many people talk about kind of, um, uh, kind of pump up the sequestration benefits, and it sounds great. Yeah, I think there's also a lot of people, um, particularly where I live. I live in Spain, and Spain on the coast of Spain has a strong interest in recovering ancient traditions of seaweed um, harvesting and cultivation. So I think it's. I think it's great, and I think that's that's partly also the invitation. I think of the climate crisis that we. Um, we're only going to solve this with massive plurality of alternatives and, 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 and proposals. Um, we need so many different parts of the puzzle to try and assemble. And I think seaweed is a crucial part of that. Um, yeah. yeah. I, I, I think it's great. Um, I mean, there has to be thoughts done around. I've heard some concerns raised around in terms of if we take seaweed, seaweed cultivation to an industrial scale, that can have certain impacts in terms of the ecosystems and a, and a nutrient overload. Um, but I think if, if, if you apply principles of agroecology, seaweed's an incredible invitation mm. to, to, to do all sorts of things um, with the seaweed. Yeah, I guess there's not always one solution fits all. Um, there will be initial, I think when scientists and new data comes out that targets a few main solutions, everyone thinks it's going to be the next massive and only solution, but they're all going to play their part. Aren't they? Yeah, each each one of us has to identify what we can contribute towards solution and manage it. So um, this is a pretty bold question here, Daniel, but ultimately, are you still optimistic about the future of our planet? Like, I'm a, personally, I'm a, a big um, optimist, but sometimes I feel like this overload in the media and it's all getting a bit grim. How can we take a positive sort of message out of such conversations like we're having today? Um, that's, a, that's a great question. Um, I think, I mean, it kind of depends on um, on a lot of people, people's disposition and what they're exposed to. I, I, I have to say I'm a mix, you know, I, I sometimes I wake up in the morning full of optimism and then I lose my optimism by the end of the day and then I reconstruct it by the evening and then I lose it again before midnight. And I think that's okay, it's messy. Um, I think certainly I would distrust anyone who, who, who is optimistic in a purely sunny way and is not attentive to the deep misery that, 
billions of people live through to the complete injustice of our economic system and the organized absurdity of the climate crisis where the people that are least responsible are paying the highest price for a crisis which is avoidable and evitable. This is not part of human nature. This is a configuration of an economic system that we can and should change. Mm. I, would be, I would be distrustful of someone who's just purely sunny and not attentive to the deep human consequences of what's going on right now. And at the same time, I would also be distrustful of someone who's deeply, purely pessimistic and, and doesn't acknowledge the complete um, um, wonder and amazingness of all the different movements of resistance and of proposal and of construction of solution and alternatives around the world. You just have to open your eyes to the, the incredible resilience of communities around the world who have been fighting on this issue for hundreds of years. Um, and that, that's enough to fill you with tons of optimism. And so I think, I think it's okay to have a healthy hope, right? Not a hope which is like blind to the reality of the world, but a hope which is grounded in and what all of us are doing, which is trying to make our lives a bit more full, a bit more rich, a bit more meaningful. That's a huge hope for me. So yeah, I, I'm definitely not one of, one of the other. I'm a messy mix of the two. And depending on the time of the day that you ask me, I'll have a different answer to that question. <laughs> but I think the most important thing to people is to take seriously also their media diet. What the information we're exposed to shapes very much the, how we think and how we feel about the world. If we're purely exposed to news that talks to us about the brutality of the world, we isolate ourselves from also the very, the very true reality of people working constructively on solutions on a daily basis. Yeah. It's all we think about, if we isolate ourselves from the human devastation of climate change, we can all be, we can lose that urgency, we can lose that grounding in the human reality of the story. So I think it's super, my, my advice, I wouldn't encourage people to be optimists or encourage people to be pessimists. I would encourage people to, to, to feel many things and to have a space for grief and have a space for hope. Um, but I think checking our media diet and making sure that we have a healthy balance in the way that we're approaching information, especially in the inundation of data and, and information that we get from social media um, in our age, I think that's, that's my advice. How about you? How do you feel about the optimism, pessimism um, question? First, yeah, I think that's a terrific answer you've given us there. Um, like they say often, yeah, you let yourself feel emotions. We're all human. Um, I think personally... Sometimes I just want to, um, you know, shut down the computer and not read any of these articles or unplug the TV and kind of almost forget about it. But then what? that's not going to be no help, is it? So, yeah, I think I like to approach it as in what can I do in my own life? Like, so that's what's taken me on the journey. I mean, I studied agribusiness and I then suddenly realised, like, agriculture as we mentioned earlier has a huge role to play in carbon sequestration potentials so by studying more sustainable agriculture systems holistic livestock management I feel I can hopefully take that knowledge back into my own community in Australia um, and maybe become an, an extension but that helps um, encourage graziers or the whole agriculture sector to switch towards a more regenerative model um, mm. that's what I'm um, definitely optimistic about um there's other things that i'm i probably won't feel like i'm difference in that aspect but you know i think if we all just um yes just realize what we cannot do in our own from an individual front um there was this i watched this video the other day and there was this activist this teenage activist who was she was saying that like the adults are having a party with the environment and she mentioned like the next generation, uh, we're stuck with cleaning it all up. What, what are your views on the, the role of youth in, in tackling climate change? Is it all up to us millennials and 
the next generation or should we continue this blame game and forget about it? Like how critical is youth in, in tackling climate change? So the, I think you're t that's a great question. I think the youth are totally important and, and this new generation as well, which is growing up with mm. far more fierceness, far more straight talking, I think, than, than certain previous generations is super inspiring and encouraging. The only thing that I would stress as well is that we have to be we have to be attentive to the to to I wouldn't call it the blame game, but the responsibility game. When we talk about the adults who've destroyed the planet, which kind of adults? You know, is it is it in a in a, in a global context where the average citizen of Mali um, has a contribution to the climate crisis that is three hundred times less than the average U.S. citizen? What does that mean when we talk about the adults? Um, is it Malian adults? Is it adults um, from communities that live um, underneath the poverty line of dignity. Um, the climate crisis has very unequal contributions. And I think it's less of a game of the, of the blame game, but of the responsibility game. Which economies, which sectors of the population are most responsible? And the reality is when we look at emissions, it's a very small chunk of the global elite um, of major corporations of the richest countries in the world that bear the biggest share of the burden for tackling the climate crisis. So I think yeah. there is a story around adults and youth and the important, the important part of generating, of, of encouraging youth to be part of it and encouraging adults to be responsible. But I think we have to qualify that. What adults in what part of the world? And finally, I think as well, when we talk about the climate crisis, and I think that's part of what we were talking about before, about the, the wisdom of indigenous communities, of, of rural communities, of agrarian communities, is there is a huge role to be played by our, our elders in, in showing us many of the solutions that we're looking for at the moment. Um, so I think um, as much as we have to play that responsibility game more than the blame game, we also have to recognize that as, as young people, there's much that we can learn from, 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 from our elders and those elders that haven't trashed the planet, that have actually adopted models that, that, that give us the best chance of exiting and, and transitioning towards a better system, if that makes sense. I definitely agree. I mean, some of the, the biggest lessons I've taken out from my, my grandfather, he's he's... 88 this year and you know <laughs> there's so much to be learned from that generation um, wisdom even practical advice so as much as they've got things wrong um, the world's all, always changing we, we need to it's it's important to ex accept the past but and tackle the issues front on um, Daniel that's pretty much a wrap for this episode um, thanks a lot for joining us and I very much enjoyed chatting to you. And I hope the listeners have also. Yeah, once again, thanks for your time and hope we can um, catch up soon and have another chat surrounding, yeah, climate change and other various topics that we all hold on the press at the moment. No, amazing. Thank you so much for the invitation, George. It's a real honour to join you and best of luck of, um, with the podcast and, and the important work of having these conversations and, and sharing stories and knowledge amongst each other. Thanks for listening to the episode with Daniel. I hope you enjoyed. Just like to make a quick announcement that Global Changemakers is now taking the next call of applications for its mentorship program and will open on the 18th of November. The mentorship program is for youth aged between 15 and 22 years old and it takes place online over a period of 12 weeks. So we pair up these individuals with mentors who have all experienced Changemakers and during this program, we would work with um, the mentees to develop their personal and professional skills and support them in developing a community project. 
So applications run from November the 18th to December the 13th. If you'd like to know more, head to www.globalchangemakers.net forward slash mentorship. Again, thanks for listening to this episode and I hope you have a great day. If you'd like to know more about Global Changemakers and our mission of enabling youth to create a positive impact in their communities, you can visit our website at global-changemakers.net or follow us on social media at WeRGCM. And if you'd like to support us further, go check out our Patreon page at Global Changemakers and help us have a greater impact. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Young Changemakers. See you next Tuesday.